Okay, so let's see here. We are doing the majestic life. Uh, Psalm 8. We're going to look at that one. Now, if I ask you the question, who are you? Fundamentally, at your core, most evangelical Christians uh, find it easy to say, I am a child of God. That's pretty good. I'm thinking of a word that starts with S. I'm a sinner. And we folk are not just sinners, are we? We're a special kind because we're reformed. T R. No, sorry. Let's try T D. We're totally depraved sinners. That's just kind of natural uh, for us to think about. I was having lunch years ago with a uh, somebody that has become a fairly well-known theologian. And uh, he said to me, Mark, do you want to know the difference between fundamentalist and reformed theology? Here's the difference. Fundamentalism starts with the fall. And reformed theology starts with creation. And I said, if that's right, I know a lot of Reformed people who are fundamentalists. And I know Reformed denominations that are fundamentalist. Let's think about it for a moment. Um, Let's think about our baptismal questions. I was ordained originally in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I'm now a minister in the uh, Presbyterian Church of America. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the first question when we bring uh, our children for baptism is this. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore subject to condemnation? Where are we starting? The fall or creation? Fall. PCA is a gentler sort than the OPC. Um, We start by saying, do you acknowledge your child's need of cleansing? So (laughs) basically, the OPC and the PCA say the same thing to parents when they bring their children for baptism. Do you believe your baby's dirty and needs a bath? That's where we start. When it comes to adults making profession of faith, it's very similar. PCA, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? That's our first question. Where are we starting? Fall, not creation. Now, the OPC is a little headier. Their first question is, do you believe the Bible in the 66 books? But their their first existential question is, do you confess that because of your sinfulness? And this is true, I think, not just of our, our baptismal questions and our public profession questions. This is true of our corporate and our individual psyche. That when we think about who we are, the most fundamental thing that we think is at the core of our being is that we are sinners. I want to look at Psalm 8 to see how it changes that. Now, this is not where the Bible begins. 
Who knows Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that true? Yes. Who wrote the Bible, ultimately? Who could have made Genesis 1-1 whatever he wanted to? Who could have started the Bible for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Who didn't? No. Not the first thing he tells us about. First thing he tells us is, let us make man in our image so that they can rule and have dominion. He tells us that we are created in his image before he tells us that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Before the fall, we were image bearers, but we were not sinners. In heaven, we're going to be image bearers, not sinners. Which is more fundamental to who we are, image bearers or sinners? Image bearers, you might think of sinful nature as an add-on. Radical, devastating, but it's an add-on that God's in the process of getting rid of. Uh, let's read Psalm 8. Psalm 8.1. Notice the title to the choir master, according to Getit. What's Getit mean? We have no idea. Yeah. Uh, you're, in, you're in league with the best Hebrew scholars if you say, well, that's a tough term. We're not sure what that means. It's a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the, the work of your hands, uh, or rather the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, let's, um, let's start by asking, what is this psalm about? And we can answer it in two different ways. Uh, <clears throat> remember Hebrew mothers taught to repeat? How does this psalm start? What are the first words? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How does this psalm end? Same way. So we might say that this psalm is about God's majesty. Starts, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Ends, O Lord, how lo our, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. But as we're going to see, the very center of this psalm is the question, what is man? More on that later. Um, <clears throat> from the perspective of the outside elements, this psalm is about the majesty of God. It's the majesty of the Creator. 
from the inside, it looks like it's about the majesty of the creature. So is it about the majesty of the creator or the majesty of the create, uh, creature? And the answer is yes. In, his, in, in, his, in the introduction to uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, um, he starts by asking the question, if I'm going to write a book on Christian theology, should I start with the doctrine of God or should I start with the doctrine of humanity? And uh, he says, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. Calvin says, how can you, how can you know God if you don't know anything about humanity? Because God, the Bible reveals God so much in terms of human terms. God walking in the garden. God as father. God as king. God says, my arm is not too short. My hand is not too weak. But he doesn't walk. He doesn't have feet. Remember the catechism question. Uh, God has not a body like men. Um, so the Bible speaks of God with human analogy so we can understand him. So if you don't know what a father is, how can you understand God the Father? If you don't know what a king is, how can you understand God as king? If you don't know what an arm is, how can you understand when God says, my arm is not too short? Uh, but on the other hand, you'll never fully understand who human beings are if you don't understand them in relationship to God because human beings have been created to reflect God. He's the original and we're the copy, so to speak. So Calvin says it's like the old chicken and the egg. You know, what comes first, the knowledge of God or the knowledge of self? And he says, actually, they're so intertwined with each other that you, you can't ever really separate knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 8 really shows us that because Psalm 8 is about the glory, the majesty of the Creator. And since we're created in His image, it's about our own majesty. So let's look at those two things. Let's start by looking at how majestic <clears throat> the divine creator. Three things from this psalm about God's majesty. First of all, it's a sovereign majesty. Notice the psalm starts by saying, O Lord, our Lord. Now, if you look at that, uh, go back here. Somehow I got to Psalm 1, but we want Psalm 8.1. Anybody notice anything different about the spelling of Lord and Lord or the printing of it? The first one is small caps, and the second one is just an initial cap and lowercase. That's a modern convention indicating to you that there's something different going on in the underlying Hebrew text. When you see Lord with small caps, that's an, that's an English rendition of God's personal name. Like, my name is Mark. God has a personal name. 
Now, the fact of the matter is, we don't know what it is. It's lost. Uh, in ancient Hebrew tradition, nobody pronounced the divine name. The second commandment says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What's one surefire way never to misuse it? Never use it at all. And so ancient Hebrews, when they came to the divine name, they would not say the divine name. They would substitute a different Hebrew word for the divine name. And that word is Adonai. And Adonai means Lord. It's the garden variety Hebrew word for Lord. So they didn't say the divine name. They substituted Adonai, which means Lord. And when Jews were translating the Bible into the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, or when New Testament writers were quoting Old Testament verses that had the divine name, they would never use the divine name. They would use the Greek word kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord. So early Christians weren't saying the divine name. They were using the Greek word kurios because they were following the ancient Hebrew tradition of not saying the divine name, but using the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. Well, there's this guy named Jerome, 400 AD. Anybody know what Jerome is famous for? He translates the Bible into Latin because now the church is centered in Rome and uh, Latin is the language of uh, scholarship and Latin is the language of the church worship service. He translates the Bible into Latin. So when he's translating the Old Testament and he comes to this uh, divine name, he doesn't say the divine name. He uses the Latin word dominus, which means what? Lord, dominion, the one who has dominion. Because Jerome is following the New Testament tradition, which is following the Hebrew tradition. We don't say the divine name. We substitute a Hebrew or a Greek or a Latin word for Lord. Now, now it's about 1400, and there's this guy named Wycliffe. What's he known for? He's going to be the first one to translate the Bible into English. So he's translating the Old Testament, and he comes to the divine name in Hebrew. He doesn't use the divine name. He uses the English word Lord because he's following the Latin tradition of using Dominus, which is following the Greek tradition of using Kurios, which is following the Hebrew tradition of using Adonai. Bottom line is we don't know what the divine name sounded like. A modern scholarly reconstruction is Yahweh. You've probably seen that printed uh, from time to time. It is a modern scholarly guess, and I and other people are suspicious that it's not correct. Um, but, but at any rate, the long-standing tradition going all the way back into the Old Testament is that we do not say the divine name. We use Lord as a substitute. And so when you the, all that goes to say, when you see in your in your Old Testament, Capital L, um, small caps, O-R-D. Underneath is uh, four Hebrew consonants, yod Hey vav Hey, which are the consonants of the divine name, which ancient Jews pronounced, uh, which ancient Jews substituted Adonai, Greeks, Kurios, Latins, Dominus, and English speakers, Lord. So that's why that's there. Now, the other Lord 
is just a word that means master. And uh, so, but notice that when God is referred to through the divine name, the ancient tradition is to acknowledge his sovereignty. Adonai, Kurios, Dominus, Lord, and he's called master. O Adonai, our master. God's sovereignty, God's, God's majesty. It is a sovereign majesty. Notice it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name where? Oh, not just in Montgomery. No. You see, his sovereignty is a sovereignty that is everywhere. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all. He is Lord, not of uh, Montgomery, not of Alabama, not of the United States, not just of uh, the Western Hemisphere. He is Lord of all. His majesty is a sovereign majesty. Number two, it's a transcendent majesty. We use this word um, transcendent theologically. Not a common word, but it's a good word. The send part means go. We get it in other words. Um, what does ascend mean? Go up. How about descend? Go down. How about transcend? Go across. Uh, wasn't there an airline with trans in it? Transamerica. It, it went across the Americas. That's transcend. Um, we use transcendent in, in something that goes across or in particular something that goes beyond. A transcendent thought goes beyond. It's what God says when he says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher my thoughts are than yours. My thoughts transcend your thoughts. They go beyond your thoughts. That's God's majesty. It's a transcendent majesty. It goes beyond. Notice that it is God's glory is above the heavens and the earth. Psalm 148.13 says the same thing that God's glory is above the heavens and the earth. Hebrew doesn't have a word for transcendent. But Hebrew can say transcendent. It can express the concept. The highest thing you can think of are the what? The heavens. So when the Bible says God's glory is higher than the highest thing you can think of, that's our way of saying God's glory is transcendent. Goes beyond anything. Uh, in that, that little book um, um, that Brandon has mentioned, Creation, A Witness to the Wonder of God, that was the first book I ever wrote. It was fun. It was actually a series of sermons that I preached in California. And um, my wife got the tapes, and she transcribed them, and then I edited them, and then we sent them to a publisher. And uh, there's a chapter on God's love and on God's glory and uh, various... Uh, characteristics of God that you can see in creation if you have the eyes to see the glory of God in creation. 
Well, um, when I was writing that book, I was friends with a fellow in California who was uh, Rio on the, uh, what was it? That would have been F-14s um, when, uh, when he was in the Navy. And in, in that chapter on God's glory, I talk about how many billions of stars there are. And I ask the question, why do we really need all those stars? And the answer is yes, because those billions of stars give us just a little glimpse of what God's glory is like. And um, I was talking to Jim because uh, we lived in Southern California at the time. And, you know, even if you go up 5,000 feet and get away from city lights, the stars that you're able to see, in comparison to being in the city, it's ridiculous. And uh, Jim said, yeah. He said, not that we ever did this because it would break protocol. But when we were flying at night in the middle of the ocean off an aircraft carrier, and we were up 40,000 feet and turned off all the interior lights in the jet and looked up through the canopy. He said, you wouldn't believe the glory of God that you would see. And then if you think about what, like, what do, what do astronauts see when they actually get out of our atmosphere, uh, all together? You know, the, the universe is some 15 billion light years wide. I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> uh, if I say to you something's a mile away, do you get it? Kind of. How about if I say, oh, that's 30 kilometers from here? Yeah, that's a little bit tougher for Americans, right? Um, a, a light year? At how far a light, light travels in one year? And then that's hard enough, but then billions. I mean, we can kind of have a little feel for what a million dollars is, right? It's 10 times $100,000. It's a little harder to figure out what a billion dollars looks like. 15 billion light years. Yeah, that's why I say I really don't know what I just said. But as big and as vast and as majestic and as glorious as that is, it's finite. It has edges. God's majesty does not. It goes beyond that. God's majesty is a sovereign majesty. It is a transcendent majesty. It is a pervasive majesty. Uh, it is in all the earth. Uh, go to a text that is uh, well known, but I think slightly misunderstood. Isaiah 6.3. Of course, we know Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Starting in verse 1, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim. Uh, those, those are not like pudgy, cute, let me hug uh, on my dashboard angels. Saraf means to burn. Those are fiery creatures. 
Those are creatures that you see and you want to go the opposite direction. Uh, With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is not affected, but the text is, it, it really does say something quite different. And I must admit, I've often been baffled as to why all of our translations say, the whole earth is full of his glory. That sounds like the earth is a container, and it's filled up, like with water, with Diet Coke, with the glory of God. But the Hebrew text really doesn't say that. Uh, it, the, the, the full is not a verb in Hebrew, it's a noun. And what the text says is, the fullness of the earth is his glory. That's different, right? Do you want to see the glory of God? The glory of God is not an ethereal, abstract concept. Just go look at a tree. Look at the person sitting beside you. Uh, Look at the human eye. Think about the human ear. Think about speech. Uh, Think about any aspect. The the most beautiful, what's the most beautiful part of creation you have ever witnessed? A puppy. Anybody else? My wife. You, oh, oh. <laughs> I was say a sunset. Sunset? Yeah. <laughs> what what place have you been on the earth that has been the most magnificent? Spot? Grand Canyon? Grand Tetons? Uh, for me it was Banff National. Uh, forest up in Canada, you know, just uh, just spectacular. When you look at that, whatever that is, that is the glory of God. The fullness of the earth is the glory of God. It's everywhere. It's in quarter sawn oak as opposed to plain sawn oak. Because the grain comes up differently depending on whether you quarter saw it, flat saw it, or plain saw it. And human beings have been given this ability to enhance the glory of God, so to speak, uh, through the technology that God has given to us, through through music and through acting and through business and uh, all of these different ways. The glory of God is everywhere. Another friend of mine, when I was in California, I made a mistake with him one day. We were in, um, we were at the Scripps Aquarium in La Jolla, California one day, just looking around at stuff. And in fact, just dawned on me now, that book Creation, A Witness to the Wonder of God is dedicated to him. I've said something like, if everybody understood or uh, loved creation the way he does, it would surely be a different world. But uh, we were looking at this big aquarium of jellyfish, and I made the mistake of saying to Don, what a simple creature. He looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, you try to make one. And I believe there are more types of jellyfish, there are more species of jellyfish than any other creature on the face of the earth. It's the glory of God. 
Whether you go to the highest heavens or the darkest part of the deepest ocean, it's everywhere. The glory of God is pervasive. His, his, his majesty is sovereign. His majesty is transcendent. His majesty is pervasive. And there's a poetic way that the, um, that the, that the poet tells us that God's glory, his majesty, surrounds absolutely everything in this world. How is that? How does the poet tell us that without using those words? What surrounds the whole poem? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. God's majesty surrounds the entire poem like God's majesty surrounds the entire creation that he has made. So first we consider that this poem is really a description to us of the majesty of the divine creator, a sovereign majesty, a transcendent majesty, a pervasive majesty. Ah, but it is also a description of the majesty of the human creature. And it just goes without saying that if God is majestic and he's created us in his image, we have to be majestic. So let's look at three characteristics from this psalm of our human majesty. First is, it's a central majesty. What do I mean about that? Uh, let's say that you're, um, you're, you're going for lunch after this session, and you're sitting at a red light, and uh, somebody rolls down the window beside you, and uh, so you're sure that they're going to ask for what? Directions. But instead of giving them directions, what you say to them is, I want you to know something. I'm the center of the universe. And so are you. Now, would that be a little strange? Yeah, but it's true. You're the center of God's universe. The Bible teaches us this in a number of ways. Remember when we talked about Psalm 1? And we had like... Um, Wicked sinners way, wicked sinners way, like a tree, like chaff, and then right in the middle, whatever you do succeeds, not so the wicked. Psalm 8 is arranged that exact same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. Right after the first majestic description of God, we have a picture of the heavens. When I consider your heavens... Right before the last picture of God, we have a description of the earth. All the animals and the sea and the fish and the birds. So we go, divine majesty, divine majesty, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We could say, in the beginning, God created the you. Universe. Hebrew doesn't have a word for universe, but it can communicate the idea. The way it refers to the universe is heaven and earth. So now notice what is right in the center of the universe in the poem. What is man 
that you were mindful of him, the son of man. This poem is artistically arranged to put that question, what is man, right in the center of the poem because it's the focus of attention. And what, what is above man, the heavens, what is below man, the earth, it's an ancient way of saying, you are the center of God's universe. Now, Genesis 1 teaches us this exact same thing, but in a different way. On what day was humanity created in Genesis 1? Six. And the reason is obvious. You always save... You always save the best for the last. You are the climax of creation. You are the apex of creation. Everything in the story of Genesis 1, day 1 through day 6 is leading up to you. By the way, in Genesis 1, how many creatures have been created in the image of God? Just humanity. Oh, remember things like... um, The vegetation. Why was the vegetation created? What are we told about the vegetation? It's there so that humans can eat it. Why are we told that the sun and the moon and the stars were put in place? So that you can mark out calendars and seasons and days and years. There is an anthropocentric principle in Genesis 1. The whole thing focuses on the creation of human beings as the apex of God's creative work. So in Genesis 1, you save the best for the last. In Psalm 8, you put the very best right in the center. But both of these things are saying the exact same thing. And that is that as creatures in the image of God, you are majestic. You are the majestic apex of God's creation. So, it really is biblical. It really is biblical to say to somebody, we are the center of the universe. And that is not a message that you hear. You don't hear it in church all that often. You don't hear it when we're baptizing our babies. You hear sinner... True, we have to have that message. But, you know, it's often the case that error is not something that's wrong. Error is truth when it is not balanced by other truth. Is it wrong to say that Jesus is a human? What about those people who believe that Jesus is a human and he's not God? Is that wrong? Yeah. Well, it's not wrong that they say that Jesus is human, But their position is wrong because it's not counterbalanced by another truth. That's why we have to strive to hold and teach the full counsel of God, which is no easy task. Uh, You're not getting this idea that you are majestic from our culture. uh, Because from our cultural point of view, you and the tree are no different. You and the whale are no different. In fact, if anything, there is a difference. Because there aren't enough whales. And there are too many what? There are too many people. 
So you are not as valuable anymore in our culture as a lot of the rest of God's creation. And so this, in my estimation, is not like a secondary lesson. This is a really important lesson because we're not hearing it. We're not hearing it from our culture, that we're majestic. We're the problem. We are the biggest environmental problem that there is. If we can only get rid of more people, we have hope of saving the planet. Uh, it's pervasive in our culture. The devaluing of God's image bearers. Now, that's not to say that God's image bearers have always done what is right by the creation. I told the story about growing up outside of Pittsburgh, steel country, back in the day when the United States still had a robust steel economy. And uh, for miles along the Ohio River went the Jones and Loxland steel plant. And when we were kids, we would love to come home from Pittsburgh to Beaver Falls at night. And you could watch them on the other side of the river pouring red hot slag out of the steel mill straight into the river. Yeah, the fish didn't fare so well, did they? Uh, Growing up in western Pennsylvania, and those of you who certainly know about it, you know the days when uh, Lake Erie was virtually a dead lake. So let's not pretend that as human beings we've always uh, been good overseers of the creation that God has made. But on the other hand, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and adopt some other kind of unbiblical system for how we relate to the creation. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, does that ring a bell? Uh, Reformed theologian, um, Labrie. Um, He has a, a wonderful analogy here with how we relate to the creation. If I were to say, um, after the second session, I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to take a walk this afternoon, and I want you to look around, and I want you to find a tree. And I want you to walk up to that tree, and I want you to say, tree, you are my brother. (laughs) Now, you'd probably think that's a little weird, too, yes? But it's very biblical. Here's Francis Schaeffer. We have two things about God. God is infinite and God is personal. Now, in terms of God being infinite, there is a great gap between the infinite God and the finite creation. And in terms of that infinity and that great gap, you and the tree are on the exact same side, folks. You are a magnificent creature, finite. The tree is a magnificent creature, finite. The tree is your brother. You are no different than the tree. Ah, but God is also personal. And in terms of God being personal... You alone in God's creation have been made in his image as personal beings, and the tree is not. So, are you the same as the tree, or are you different than the tree? Yes. Do you see how 
we can so easily get an imbalanced view. How we can view ourselves as being image bearers, therefore the tree is nothing because we are image bearers. And we have dominion. And we can do with the creation whatever we want. It's an imbalance. On the other hand, you are no different than the tree. You got cells just like the tree has. What makes you think you're any better? You can't cut down the tree. How dare you think so? The Bible just brings this marvelous balance to our understanding of how we relate to the rest of creation as equals and how we are different than the rest of the creation at the same time. And if we just strive to maintain this biblical balance in how we view ourselves and the rest of the creation, it really would be a much better place in which we could uh, live and move and have our being. So you have a central majesty. Number two, and this kind of goes without saying, it's, it's uh, redundant, but I'm going to say it anyhow. You have a royal majesty. Well, what other kind is there, right? I, I hope that this coming week, none of you have to stand before a judge. But if you do, how would you address the judge? Your honor. Uh, we don't have kings and queens. But if we did, and you had an audience with the queen, how would you address the queen? Your majesty. Majesty and royalty, they just go hand in glove. And your majesty is a royal majesty. Uh, notice what it says in Psalm 8. Uh, Got to get back there, out of Isaiah <coughs> chapter 6. Verse 6, what did God make you? Rulers. That's image bearing. In Genesis 1, let us make humanity in our image so that they can rule and have dominion. You see, in the ancient world, um, King A is king of, of, he's king of kingdom A over here. And uh, he goes to war and he beats up kingdom B over here. But he can't be in two places at at the same time. So you know what he would do? King A would make an image of himself. And he would put that image of himself in the capital of kingdom B so that everybody would see this image and they would know who the real king is. That's part of what it means for you to be in the image of God. God typically works immediately, not immediately. Now, when we use the word immediate, we usually mean what? Right now. That's not what I mean. Immediate means through a mediator, and immediate means without a mediator. Think about this for a moment. Do you believe that God can heal someone immediately. And I don't mean right now. I mean that God can heal somebody without mediation. He doesn't need a surgeon. He doesn't need pills. He doesn't need alternative medicines. He doesn't need supplements. He can speak and it is done. God can heal immediately with no help. 
How does God normally heal? Routinely. Immediately. He heals by putting people on antibiotics or surgery or rest. In other words, God typically uses agency to do his work. That is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says the main message of the book of Psalms is that the Lord reigns. But the Lord reigns immediately through his anointed king. Uh, and so we have this God working, but him, him working immediately, which is why he made you in his image. Who rules over the creation? Who rules over the earth? Ultimately, God does. But how does God do it? Through humanity, so that when the rest of the creation sees us, they should see through us to the real king. Like in the ancient world, they would see through the statue to the real king who was the sovereign. And so we have God making you ruler. And then it says God God did what? He crowned you with two things. What are they called? Glory and honor. Glory and honor are a pair in the Old Testament. And if you get out your um, electronic Bible and you search, say, find me every place where glory and honor occur. They only occur in one context. They occur in the context of kingship. God as the divine king is a God of glory and honor. You as human king, David as the human king, glory and honor. Glory and honor are a pair that say royalty. So you are rulers. You are crowned with glory and honor. Not only is it okay for you to say to somebody, um, I'm the center of the universe. But tomorrow morning when you come to church, just try this. Especially try it on people who weren't here. (laughs) And you'll know that they weren't here by the look. When they come up to you, instead of saying, hi, Tom, say, good morning, your majesty. (laughs) They will think it weird. Okay, maybe a few won't. Maybe a few will say, well, good morning, servant. (laughs) But, uh, But at any rate, it's appropriate. This is how we need to view ourselves. You are kings and queens, princes and princesses. You are children of the Most High God. And if he is king, if he is royalty, what does that make you as his children? Now let's go back to uh, Princess Diary. Diary, diaries. One, plural, Plural. What a movie of redemption. And you have to have seen it to get it. But um, Mia. Can you picture Mia at the beginning of the movie? Picture her hair. Picture her clothing. Picture her shoes. She is portrayed in a very frumpish way. Yes? Picture Mia at the end of the movie. Her hair, 
her makeup, glasses gone, her clothing. That's a radical transformation that has taken place. What explains the difference between the beginning Mia and the final Mia? Is she somebody different than she was at the beginning? No. What happened? She understood what? She understood something about herself that she didn't understand before. Frumpish Mia was princess. She was royalty. She just didn't know it. She didn't view herself as royalty. But by the end of the movie, she's changing, she's transforming, her posture's straightening up, her shoulders are going back, her makeup is going on, her clothing's getting done, her hair is getting done, and she looks beautiful like a princess. She has just become who she always was. She didn't become somebody that she was not. Let's think about sanctification for a moment. How often do we think of sanctification as becoming what we're not? I'm just not patient enough. I'm not kind enough. I don't have enough self-control. What if we started to think about sanctification as becoming who we are? Because after all, the Bible says that in Christ you are new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. You are new creation in Christ. You know, when the, because you're justified, when the Father looks at you right now, he sees somebody who is perfectly kind, perfectly patient, perfectly loving, perfectly self-controlled, because you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is your new identity. As created, you're image bearers. As redeemed, you're new creation. This is who you are. You are not that old person anymore. But we still continue to think about ourselves as old creation, not as the new creation that we are in Christ. We could learn a lot from Princess Diaries. Learning to become more and more who we truly are already in Christ. It makes a difference. It makes a difference in how you view yourselves. It makes a difference in how you view fellow believers. If you view those people with whom you are having difficulty as fundamentally sinners, it's going to affect how you treat them. If you view them as image bearers, majestic, you might hold your tongue once or twice, as you would if you were in the presence of Prince Charles. You'd think twice before you spoke to royalty that way. How you view yourself and how you view others makes a big difference. Now, I don't want you to leave here with a big head. So I have one more point to make. And that is that your majesty is derivative. 
What's that mean? It comes from somewhere else. Did you notice how the text says that God crowned you? Who didn't crown you? You didn't. Oh, but notice the language of crowning. Who wears a crown? Yeah, God crowned you. It came from him. God made you ruler. You didn't make yourself ruler. Everything that you are and everything that you have is derivative. It comes from somewhere else. And that spells humility. See, we have no reason for boasting because everything that we have is a gift from God. And since God has freely given it to us, how can we boast and say, look how great I am? No, we say, look how great God is and how good God is and how generous God is. Because God has made me everything that I am. And I wouldn't be anything without him. And so while we are speaking of our glory, our embracing our glory is ultimately for the... It's ultimately for the glory of God. So you may be the center of the universe, but you are not ultimate. There's only one who is ultimate. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, I'm close with uh, this illustration. Let's presume that it is um, 4th of July, and we've just had a church picnic. And we are getting up from the table. We use paper plates. And when we look at the paper plates, you know, you can see the leftover baked beans and you can see some ketchup and you can see some mustard and some relish and, I don't know, some coleslaw. Just the plates are pretty messy, right? All kind of like leftover stuff on them. So what are you going to do with the paper plate? I'm just going to throw it away. Why? Because you don't what? It starts with a V. You don't value it. Okay, not 4th of July. Thanksgiving. Grandma's house. She has just finished serving you Thanksgiving dinner on her china. Now, you look at the plate, and, you know, there's the red cranberry stuff, and there's some turkey and some corn and there's some mashed potatoes and there's some gravy and looks pretty messy, right? Kind of looks like the 4th of July plate. What don't you do? Why not? (laughs) Because grandma values it. (laughs) You see, you can see beneath all the yucky stuff on the plate And when you look beneath all the yucky stuff, you see something of great value. In other words, you treat the paper plate and the china in a different way because you see something different underneath all the yuck. Let's face it, folks. When we look at ourselves and when we look at each other, there's plenty of yuck to see. If that's all we see, we don't have any basis for valuing ourselves or valuing our fellow human beings. 
They're just like the paper plates and chuck them. But Psalm 8 and the rest of the Bible gives us eyes of faith. Eyes of faith that enable us to see below all the yuck and to see fine china. Think of all the yuck as for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's there. It's real. Let's not pretend it's not there. But underneath is the fine china that you've been made in the image of God. And may God grant us grace to be able to believe his word and live by faith and not by sight. Because as you begin to see who you are as image bearers, you'll start to treat yourself differently. And as you begin to see other people as image bearers, you'll begin to treat them differently. When you're at that intersection and you see somebody all disheveled with a sign that says, we'll work for food. What do you see? Often we see somebody who's just made a bunch of bad mistakes and they're reaping what they sow. Or you have the eyes of faith to see the image of God and to act accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring David to write Psalm 8. Uh, thank you for how much more there is for us to learn from this psalm. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take what we have reflected on and that you would sweeten this part of your word into our hearts and minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.